to it. I want to say hello uh, here this morning to my good friend and sister in Christ from Allen Park. Uh, Vicki's here visiting with us and her two beautiful granddaughters, right, Katie and Margo. And so it's just wonderful having them here in the audience today. Uh, you know, as we think about the lesson today, uh, I told you guys as we go through the Life of Christ Challenge, we're going to start to uh, uh, intermix some different sermons that will go hand in hand with the lesson. And I was hoping we were going to get to Lesson 5 this morning. Instead, we were in Lesson 4, really about the genealogies. But Lesson 5 is going to start to get into uh, Jesus' uh, early life, uh, his mother Mary, uh, his, uh, uh, his uh, virgin birth, and things like that. And so this morning's lesson is going to be on Mary, the mother of Jesus. And it's such a very uh, important topic. Uh, yesterday, I couldn't be at Cackleberry. I had my, uh, my uncle's funeral was yesterday. That's my uncle that passed away just after DLES. And then my wife had the surgery. and Or my wife, uh, my aunt had the surgery. Uh, and so they finally were just able to have his memorial service yesterday. And so I was at the Catholic Church, and we were at the Mass, and I could see the statue of Mary and all the candles and the lights and everything that are on her. And Have you ever had any friends or family members uh, who are Catholic? and they buy the statues and they put they plant flowers around them and many times they'll run the electricity and they have the light shining on it and why do they do these things well they do these things because they've idolized mary if not even deified mary and so we're going to talk about mary because mary is so important i mean how important is mary to the christian religion right she's very important but not so much not so important that we deify her but is she important? Absolutely. And so generally what I've seen in the church, in my short time in the church, and there's really two schools of thought in Christendom. People who are either going to idolize Mary or just take the polar opposite example as the pendulum swings the other way and completely ignore Mary, right? They'll want to either idolize her or ignore her as if she doesn't matter. And the fact of the matter is she matters. And so we're going to look at that here this morning as we look at the life of Mary. And so as we think about Mary, you know, how often is it that second group that wants to, uh, they, they want to focus more in on the virgin birth, but not so much on the virgin, right? And so why did God choose Mary? You know, that's a, that's a logical question that we're going to get into next week's Bible study on Sunday morning. We're going to talk about uh, uh, the characteristics, the things that we can know about Mary, but we're going to stick to book, chapter, and verse. Because that's what I'm going to do this morning. I want us to look at Mary. What can we know about Mary? But I also want to show you the other extreme and, and why both of them are wrong, right? We need to look at Mary, appreciate Mary, and, and give thanks for who she was. As She must have been a, 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 a young, righteous, uh, beautiful, pure-hearted person for God to choose her to bring her son into the world. And so that's what we're going to look at here this morning. We're not going to, we're going to stick right to the middle. We're not going to be one extreme or the other. And so Mary was the mother of Christ Jesus. And too many preachers, they'll preach on people like Martha and Dorcas and uh, Priscilla and Phoebe, but they'll ignore Mary oftentimes. And Mary was the mother of Jesus Christ. She was the mother of our Lord and Savior. She was chosen. She was accepted. She was utilized by God. And she was a person that, that of her own free will said, let it, be done, let it be done unto me as you have said. And so we know that when we think about Mary, Mary was not divine, but she was the mother of the Messiah. And when I mention that some have idolized her and some have deified her, what am I talking about? Well, obviously, if you know anything about Mary, you're talking about the Catholic Church. And so I'm going to share with you some things today that they teach 
that are contrary to what the Bible actually teaches, uh, contrary to the Bible concepts, but I want you to see how there's two different sides, and I want you to also understand that we are to focus in on, thus saith the Lord, are we not? I mean, isn't that the reason why we have the Bible in the first place? To teach, to, to encourage, to train up in righteousness, to rebuke? 2 Timothy 3.16 talks on these things. So as we look at this, I want you to understand that Catholicism teaches that Mary was sinless. And when we think of this idea that Mary was sinless, what do we mean by that? They actually teach that they believe that Mary was immaculately conceived. Well, what does that mean? Allowing her to escape the taint of Adam's sin. So you know anything about uh, some of their teachings, and, and not even just them, but other denominations teach the original sin, and that how we are born with the sin of Adam. And so where does this come from? Well, in the Baltimore Catechism on page 36, Jim, I think it's not working. So in the Baltimore Catechism on page 36, here we go, here we go, okay, I think it might be working now. All right, so notice what it says in the Baltimore Catechism, page 36. It says, the Blessed Virgin Mary was preserved from original sin, and this privilege is called her Immaculate Conception. And so these are the things that, are, that they teach. And if they taught these things and it lined up with book, chapter, verse of what we know God's holy word said, well, then so be it, that would be fine. But the fact of the matter is, it doesn't, it doesn't line up with what God's holy word actually teaches. Uh, pope Pius, who was the ninth pope on December 8th, 1854, had this to say according to the Catholic Faith publication on page 48. The Blessed Virgin Mary, the Pope said, was, pre was preserved from all the stain of original sin. We declare that this doctrine was revealed by God and must be held firmly and constantly by all the faithful. As I said, according to the Catholic Faith publication, page 48. We also know that if you were to go to the Catholic Dictionary, on page 430, it says, A Catholic is bound, and this is really interesting, A Catholic is bound to hold that this doctrine was contained in the faith once delivered to the saints by the apostles. On the other hand, he is under no obligation of believing it possible to produce clear historical proof. So over and above the church's decision that the doctrine was so contained. So essentially, what did it just say there on page 430 of the Catholic Dictionary? Essentially, the Catholic Dictionary is saying that Catholics need not believe that there be any proof for this doctrine concerning Mary, but they still must accept it. So there's no proof but you still must accept it. Is that a problem? I mean, what does it say in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16? That all scriptures inspire for God is profitable for training, uh, for correction, for encouragement, uh, for, uh, for reproof, and so, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped. We know that uh, 2 uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 20, 21 says that all scripture has, uh, is not of the hearts and minds of men, but it has been given to us, paraphrasing, by the Holy Spirit of God. And so it wasn't uh, devised through the hearts and minds of men. And so you look at these different teachings that Mary was sinless. Really, brethren, the source of their belief is traced all the way back to something called the infancy gospel, the infancy gospel of James. Have you ever heard of the infancy gospel of James? Well, you probably haven't because it's not in your Bible. And it didn't even come about until the third century. Think about that. It came about in the third century. When did the church begin? Oh, AD 33. 
That's a very long, uh, very long time later that these other false gospels came into existence. So the infancy gospel of James is where they get some of these teachings. But the earliest copy, as I said, was the third century. Well, the problem is, is what does the Bible say? Well, if you go all the way back, not even to New Testament times, you go back all the way to Ezekiel's time, right? You go back and you look there in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20. What does he say? What does God say? Uh, in regards to uh, regards to sin, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment of the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment of the son's iniquity. It goes on to say this, uh, the soul of the person who sins will die. Meaning that in, if you go back to the beginning of Ezekiel chapter 18, it talks about how uh, the proverb that was passed on that the sons ate the sour, or the fathers ate the sour grapes and the children's teeth were set on edge. And God, the father says, no longer will you teach this parable or this proverb in Israel. Because he says, all souls are mine. The soul who sins will die. So what does that mean? That means that we don't take on the sins of Adam. We have to deal with the consequences of Adam's sin and Mary's sin in the garden when they were booted out. So there's consequences. But my soul, when I am born, I am pure. I don't take on the sins of Adam. I have to deal with the consequences of their sins. Just like I don't take on the sins of my father, but I may have to deal with the consequences of the sins of my father. Anybody here ever grow up with a, uh, a father or a mother that has some form of addiction or in trouble with the law or different things? Is it going to make life more difficult for the family? Well, yes, and that's dealing with the consequence of the sin, but I don't actually take on the sin. And so you look at this information in Ezekiel 18 and 20, it's pretty simple. We are all responsible for our own sins, not the sins of Adam. And I know this to be true because I fast forward to the New Testament and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, the Holy Scriptures tell us, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed or compensated for his deeds done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Does it say that you have to be uh, recompensed for Adam's sin or does it say you have to be recompensed for your own sin? So when I stand before God in judgment, am I going to give an account of my life or Adam's life? I'm going to give account of my life. And so, brethren, we can see very clearly that you will be found guilty or worthy of God's acceptance based on your own actions. So, brethren, the Bible teaches that children are born innocent. And so, as I said, some of the problem is, is that when you go back and you look at the doctrine of what they teach in regards to Mary, uh, the Baltimore Catechism on page 36, as I mentioned a few moments ago, it said the Blessed Virgin Mary was preserved from original sin, and this privilege is called the Immaculate Conception, something that you'll never find in the Bible. It's just a man-made oral tradition. But what is the problem with that? Well, the problem with it, that is, is that they're not wrong, the only problem is, is that they forget that, oh yeah, the rest of the world too is also in the same boat. Because what does the Bible say about children? Well, in Deuteronomy, I don't have, I don't have these on the slide for you, but in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 39, it says, their children do not have the knowledge of good and evil. In Deuteronomy chapter 39, that section of scripture is talking about when they're in the, they're in the wilderness, uh, while, they're in that, while, they, while they were in the wilderness, God was angry with them and that they said that no, uh, no longer will this generation enter into the promised land, but their children will enter the promised land. And it goes on to basically say uh, that uh, the children do not have the knowledge of good and evil. 
Psalm 106 tells us that the sacrifice of children was the death of innocent blood. Why does it say the sacrifice of your children on pagan altars is the sacrifice of innocent blood? Because they have not been tainted yet. The children are innocent and pure. And if a young child was to die, or a child before the age of, uh, uh, before the age of when they come to the knowledge of sin, then brethren, these children automatically go to heaven. And that's what it was talking about in Psalm 106. The sacrifice of children was the death of innocent blood. We know that in Matthew chapter 18 it says that we must be like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they're pure of hearts. Matthew 19 says the kingdom is, is composed of, ch uh, of a childlike people. Well, why is that? What is my point for going over these passages of Scripture? When the Catholic Church says that Mary was born without sin, they are correct. The only problem is, is they believe that she was the only one that was born without the, the, uh, with the Immaculate Conception. They don't tell you that the rest of us, too, were also born. That's why they baptized babies. They used to baptize the babies because of the problem of original sin. But what's interesting about that doctrine is they've now actually changed that doctrine. And so it's very interesting that they have changed that over the years. But we also know that in idolizing and deifying Mary, Catholics go on even further and claim that Mary not only was born sinless without the sin of Adam, they claim that she lived a sinless life. And I want you to see this. And, and the brethren, the reason why, this isn't a Catholic Bible study this morning, but the point is, what are we doing on Sunday morning? I know half of you aren't here on the Sunday morning for Bible study. Right now we're studying the life of Christ. And we're looking at all of the information that's leading up to the, the political environment, the climate, everything that was taking place before Christ was born, and then during his, his early life and ministry. And so what's the point of looking at these scriptures? What can we know? What does the Bible teach? What can we know to be true from the word of God and not the hearts and imaginations of man? So I'm showing you these different passages of how they've glorified, deified, idolized Mary, and these things are found nowhere in the Holy Scriptures. Notice what it goes on to say when it talks about her sinless life that she lived. If you go all the way over here to the Baltimore Catechism on page 36, it says, Our Blessed Mother was free throughout her life from all actual sin, both mortal and venial. Mortal and venial sins are Catholic terms, but it basically says that she remained sinless, according to the Baltimore Catechism, page 36. The question box uh, communication says this on page 360. The Catholics believe that the Blessed Virgin was free from all actual sin because of divine tradition confirmed by the Council of Trent. Well, why is that important? The Council of Trent didn't come about to 1545. 1,500 years later, after Mary's life, they determined that she lived a sinless life. Well, that's a few generations removed. So what is the source of their beliefs? Well, again, it goes back to the infancy gospel of James, which claimed that Mary was kept separate at her early age from all defilements. Listen to this. She was not even allowed to touch the ground. It also claims that she was sent to live in the temple and was fed by the hand of an angel for 12 years. Brethren, I'm not making this stuff up. This is literally where they get a lot of these different doctrines and what they teach. And you are to believe these things, if you are adherents of Catholicism, you are to believe them even though there's no proof for them. Is that a problem? 
Brethren, so again, ask yourself, what does the Bible teach? Well, the Bible tells us that only deity is sinless. I know this because in Deuteronomy 32, it says God is without fault. In 1 John 1 and 5, it says there is no sin in God. In Revelation 15, it says God alone is holy. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says Jesus knew no sin. In 1 John 3 and 5, it says in Jesus there is no sin. In 1 Peter 2 and 22, it says Jesus committed no sin. Well, what's the point? Jesus lived a sinless life, not Mary. And so the point is very simple, brethren. Mary lived a sin-filled life, meaning that she was, not, she was found blameless before the Lord. If you ever go back and you study about you know, Abraham and Sarai, uh, Elizabeth uh, and Zechariah, it says they were found blameless before the Lord. Not perfect. It means that they had sin, but they repented of sin. They had, they had a, a godly remorse, and they did everything they can to live according to the scriptures. And so they were found blameless before the God. Not perfect. Mary would have probably fell into that same category. Blameless, but not perfect. And so, brothers and sisters, understand that the Bible is crystal clear that all human beings have sinned except one, Christ Jesus. You look at 1 John chapter 1, and it tells us, to say that we have not sinned is to lie, and the truth is not in you. To say that you have not sinned is to lie and to say that the truth is not in you. Romans 3 tells us that all mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what the Bible actually teaches. Even Mary praised God, her Savior, in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46 and 47. She says, from what, uh, from what uh, was she, or the question is, from what was she saved? And what was the need of her having a Savior, as it says in Luke chapter 1 and verse 46 and 47? That is oftentimes called the Magnificent. And so you go back, and if she needed a Savior, what did she need a Savior for if she never had sinned? She herself says that the Lord is my Savior. And so, why would you need a Savior if you had no sin? None of us, if we lived perfect lives, would have ever needed the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so, brethren, we look at all of this information. Also, in the, in the idolization and the deifying of Mary, the Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a perpetual virgin. The Baltimore Catechism tells us on page 49... Mary, the mother of God, remained a virgin not only in conception of Christ, but also in his birth and during the rest of her life. If you go to the Catholic Dictionary on page 555, it says, Nor does the New Testament ever imply that Mary ceased to be a virgin. On the contrary, it convert. notice what it says, it confirms, though it nowhere states, the Catholic dogma of her perpetual virginity. Brethren, I love that last part. I mean, seriously, think about that from a logical mind. Nor does the New Testament ever imply that Mary ceased to be a virgin. On the contrary, it confirms, though it nowhere states, that the Catholic dogma of the perpetual virginity. Brethren, they actually state that the New Testament supports its position without ever actually stating its position. How can that possibly be? And so you look at the scriptures here this morning. So where does this idea come from? Oh, you guys remember the, the infancy gospel of James that I talked about that came about in the 3rd century? That's where it comes from. They, the infancy gospel of James claims that Joseph was a widower with already children, is said to have taken guardianship of Mary by marrying her without ever having a sexual relationship with her. 
The Emphasis Gospel of James also claims that Jesus was born by appearing in a great light so that Mary remained a virgin even after her birth. Brethren, these things I cannot make up. These are the things in which were they pulled doctrine from. And yet the Catholic Church doesn't rec even recognize the infancy gospel of James from the 3rd century as a, as a canonical book, as a, as, as a book that is God-breathed, and yet they pull various aspects of Scripture from it in order to prove their own traditions and doctrines. So again, I ask the question, what does the Bible teach? Well, in Luke chapter 1, verse 27, 34, and 35, Mary was said to be a virgin until Jesus' birth. If I tell you that somebody's a virgin until, that implies what? It implies that she was no longer a virgin moving forward. Matthew chapter 1, 18, 23, and 25 says, Mary was a virgin until Jesus' birth, which implies her virginity ended at that point. Brethren, the reason for their doctrine of per perpetual virginity is because it's an attempt to exalt Mary above any and all other human beings. They claim this based on the mistaken idea that they believe that virginity is more holy and pure than marriage. But that's not what the Bible teaches. It is the same reasoning that they, they forbid marriage for nuns as well as priests. But the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 and verses 18 through 22 tells us that self-denial, self-abasement is not a sign of religious living. So he's telling us that just denying yourself is not the sign of a religious individual in, in Colossians 2, 18 through 22. And so brethren, there are also these other troubling little facts that we find in the Holy Scriptures. In Mark chapter 6 and 3, it actually names Jesus' brothers. In, Mark, uh, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 40, uh, 46 through 50, it mentions his mother, his brothers, oh yeah, and even sisters. Well, why is that a troubling fact? Because it ruins the idea of the perpetual virginity, that she remained a virgin even beyond uh, the, the, uh, beyond giving birth to Jesus. Because even after uh, his conception and birth, she remained a virgin because of this great light that came and then Jesus appeared, as, it, as we learn from the, the infancy gospel of James. Mary could not have remained a virgin, brethren, if Jesus had other brothers and sisters. So the question is, how do they come about this? Well, the Catholics argue that the Greek word for brother that is used in Matthew chapter or Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 12 is, is actually the word that the, the text is a word for the text that means cousins and not brothers. Yet they have no proof for this. They have no proof for this or their tradition because the Greek word that is used in, in, in the passages of Mark chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 12 is never once used in the Bible to reference cousin. For, but only physical brothers and fellow countrymen. All you have to do is open up a Greek lexicon, and you'll find that information out for yourself. Brethren, they also ignore the mention of his sisters, which is the Greek word used for sister, and it is only used for that of immediate family members. So again, you look at all of this information. Why are we talking about so much of the Catholic doctrine this morning? Because it goes back to my opening statements. Because of what the Catholics have done by idolizing and deifying Mary, by making her on equal ground with God, they have swung the pendulum so far the other way that now many of us in the church don't ever even want to acknowledge Mary or talk about Mary because we're afraid that we might fall into the idolship of Mary like some of the other denominations have done. Both concepts are wrong. 
Mary was an amazing young Jewish woman who was pious, who was religious, who kept the word of God, who knew scripture. And she must have had a good, holy, and pure heart. Otherwise, God wouldn't have chosen her to bring his son into the world, to raise his son, uh, and to get him ready for his ministry. Brethren, we look at all of this information. So what can we know about Mary before we close this lesson down? We know that to be chosen by God, she must have been of pure heart, as I said. We know that she was a Jewish girl and not a Gentile like us. We know that she was highly favored and that God was with her. We know that God had sent the, April, the angel Gabriel specifically uh, to, to talk to her and to bring this before her. We know that the Holy Spirit had come upon her, lighting upon her, and that the power of the Holy Spirit came over her and she conceived. We know that she is considered blessed among the women. And we know that she's considered blessed among women because she's literally the mother of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So yes, she's most blessed among women. And there's nothing wrong with saying that. Because who here, if you were a young Jewish girl in that, in that first century, wouldn't have loved to have been the mother of the Messiah? To have the Holy Spirit guiding you, leading you, protecting you throughout your motherhood and throughout your raising of your child. Brethren, so you look at this, the claim of her, uh, of her virginity was repeated in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. So either Jesus was the pure son of God or he was some Ill illegitimate child. Well, the Bible tells us he is the pure son of God. This was the dream and the prayer of every young Jewish girl to be able to be the mother of the Messiah because they were all waiting for what? They were all waiting for the Messiah. It was prophesied that it would become of a virgin birth. So who here wouldn't have loved to have been that young woman? She was of the town of Nazareth. She was probably, historians believe, she was probably somewhere between the ages of 13 and 18. She would have been in her teenage years. God chose this little town with a bad name, with a bad reputation, with a God-fearing woman to bring his actual son into the world, which proves that you could still be a good and morally upright person even if you're in the midst of evil in, 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 in your surrounding. Mary chose to be involved. She accepted the challenge that the angel had brought to her. She says, let it be done to your maidservant as you have spoken, paraphrasing. And so, brethren, Mary went to be with Elizabeth, her relative. And Mary and, uh, Mary and Elizabeth, they knew scripture. And as soon as Mary walks in the front door of her house, the scriptures tell us that the Holy Spirit filled Elizabeth, and she basically prophesied about what she had no clue of what was already told and had already been told to, uh, or told to Mary. Brethren, we know that in Acts chapter 1, in verse 14, Mary was listed amongst the 120 individuals who were in the upper room waiting as the, uh, as, as the apostles were waiting for the, uh, the, the coming of the helper of the Holy Spirit. Her son uh, was now the savior of the world. Not only did she, was she a firm believer in her son but, and, and obeyed and prayed, uh, uh, and prayed to the father through her son Jesus, but we also know that, uh, that her two children also became believers. So why did God choose Mary? Brethren, because she was a godly woman. She believed God and she trusted in his promises. She trusted and believed in the power of God to bring about his will for mankind. She was humble of hearts. 
She was submissive to the will of God. She was brave and courageous. Think about the idea of being brave and courageous. This is a young teenage girl who's betrothed, which we'll talk about in our Bible study next week. And betrothed is, is, is more serious than in a, an engagement in our culture. An engagement in our culture, something happens, we can walk away. If you're betrothed, you're already married. You're already married in the sense that you're legally bound to one another. And to get out of a betrothment, you would have had to have had a legal divorce. And so they could not have a sexual union that first year. That usually came about about a year later after the actual marriage ceremony. But we know that. Why is that important? Because she accepted the challenge that God had given her to be the, to be the mother of his child. And that would have actually caused her to be ridiculed by her society, ridiculed by her brethren, and possibly even put to death. Because if a betrothed woman would have been found pregnant, she would have, and it wasn't from her husband, she would have been stoned to death. And so she had, she had to be brave and courageous in order to go through knowing the ridicule, knowing the dirty looks, knowing the gossip and the slander that was going to take place. She was also willing to take responsibility. Because if many of our Bible scholars and historians believe that Joseph must have died uh, sometime early in Jesus' life, because nowhere in Jesus' ministry is he actually mentioned. And so many of the Bible historians believe that he probably died early on sometime, which means then she would have had to have taken on both parental roles. And yet we know that Jesus, uh, we know how he, how he turned out. I mean, not only was he guided by the Holy Spirit, but what a godly mother and example she must have been. She was faithful to God and the task that was given to her. Brethren, Mary was in the upper room. She was a believer. Her, her two children, Judas and James and Jude, went on to also become believers when they were not believers during Jesus' earthly ministry. And we know that Mary is surely blessed among women. And so, brethren, as I close this down, praise Mary for her faithfulness. Praise Mary for the, her love of God. Praise Mary for her dedication to God's will, to the scriptures, as well as her dedication to the early church. But the exaltation ends there. The exaltation ends there. She was a wonderful, godly, God-fearing woman who did all that was required of her. But the exaltation ends there. Shame on the Catholic religion for creating a completely false narrative around Mary that is going to cause sin amongst its leadership and sin amongst its members, for, for making up a false story and for getting its members to worship somebody other than God. Brethren, we are to worship God and God alone. Nowhere in Scripture can you find any of the things that I mentioned about what they teach here this morning. And I only gave you just a small fragment of it. I could go on for another hour of the things that they teach. But enough said. Brothers and sisters, if you're here today and you're hearing this message, it is so very important that you understand why we need to study to show ourselves approved. That's what the scriptures tell us. Study to show yourselves approved. 1 Timothy 4 and 16, it actually talks about how Paul warned Timothy that I mentioned in Bible study this morning, that you need to be careful about what you teach because it not only affects you, but it also affects you and the salvation of those who hear you. So if people are buying into false doctrine, it affects their salvation, not just your salvation. And so why do we study to show ourselves approved? So we can then uh, question when things are spoken and taught that I can't find in Holy Writ. 
Holy Writ is what guides us in life and godliness that it tells us in 2 Peter 1 and 3. And so we need to make sure that we follow the word of God and not follow the word of man. You remember when the apostles Peter and John and the other ones were commanded by the Sanhedrin, were commanded by the Pharisees to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ because they're bringing the, the, his blood on our heads? They said, they said what? We must preach God rather than man. I must, I must adhere to the word of God rather than your instruction. So, brethren, it is simple. If you want to be a child of God and you want to live out your lives and be found faithful unto God, you study what the Word of God says and not what all of these extra books and traditions teach. That is the exact reason why Jesus kept calling the leadership of the Jews hypocrites time after time after time because they set aside the Word of God in order to keep their own teachings. In Christendom, we set aside the word of God in order to keep our own teachings. So Jesus would have called us what? Hypocrites. Brethren, I'm not making this stuff up. You can look it up yourself, and I pray that you do. If you're here today and you're hearing this message and you, need, uh, and you, are, uh, you have been away from the church for a while, and, and maybe you want to be restored, maybe you want to come back to the family of God, maybe you want to get back involved and you want to, uh, and you just want to come forward and you, you have a heavy heart and you want to ask the church leaders to, to pray for you and to restore you so we could get back into the, the work of the church, you could do that this morning. And even if you didn't want to do that, you could sit there with your, with your heads bowed and you could lift up your heart and God to prayer and you could ask God for those, that same forgiveness. But maybe you're here this morning because you're not a child of God, but it's been on your heart and you've been thinking about these things and you want to become a child of God. You want to be baptized for the remission of your sins so you can receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then come forward as we stand and sing the song of invitation. <clears throat> well, I can...